That's a blessing. Thank you so much. Children can be dismissed at this time for Children's Church in the back. We thank you for the opportunity they have learning on their level. While you turn your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. That's where we'll be in today. Mark <clears throat> chapter 2. I was reading this week about how people in Japan are so busy, of course, same everywhere, I suppose, but just with modern uh, life, they're so busy that older people can now rent a family. Uh, elderly Japanese who are isolated from their children because of the rat race and, and the modern life, the modern family, can now rent a family for a few hours. If you'll call Kosei Hunbu and you'll ask for a son, a daughter, a grandchild, whatever relative you're missing, and they will give you the appropriate person at the appropriate time or the agreed time. They'll come and knock on your door and you'll open the door and they will greet you like they haven't seen you in years. Of course, they're strangers. You've just rented them. And this service isn't cheap. Three hours with your family will cost over $1,000 plus transportation. Uh, Setsuki Ohiwa founded this business in 1990, and she said this, what is common about our clients is that they are thirsty for human love. That's a sad story, isn't it? To have to rent a family. But I've got good news for you today. You can save yourself the money that it would take to rent someone who acts like they like you. <laughs> that would be a sad thing, wouldn't it? What if there were a place who offered the love of Christ and uh, to people who are thirsty for love? What if there were a, love, a, a place that would be a beacon of love and acceptance of people of all stripes? And I tell you today, there is. It's called the local church. And that's one of the blessings of us being able to gather here together. You can be part of a ch loving church family. And that's the way it should be, amen, uh, for us to have that type of love for one another, and so we're grateful that you're here today. And if you need a family, I'm available for hire. My number's in the bulletin, so you can give me a call. Okay. We continue today on our study of the Friends of Jesus. And as we go through, there won't be in any particular order. We're just, uh, uh, I've got a whole list of the ones I'm, I'm reading about and studying about. Today, we look at the man called Matthew. One of the facts that stands out about the 12 disciples is just how ordinary they were when Jesus met them and called them. All 12, with the exception of Judas Iscariot, were from Galilee. But that whole region, it's predominantly rural, uh, consisting of small towns and villages. The people were definitely not elite. They were not in the upper crust of society. They were not known for their education. They were the commonest of the common. They were fishermen. They were farmers. They were Blue collar, we would say today. In fact, today we would kind of refer to it as flyover country, maybe, uh, there in Galilee. And uh, this is a reminder to all of us that God does not seek out professionals or elite people. He uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. May I remind you that the Titanic was built by professionals. The ark was built by an amateur. You ever thought about that? We know how those turned out. 
But God uses common people, ordinary people, to do extraordinary things. Such were the disciples. Jesus passed over the sophisticated, the educated, the aristocratic, the influential, and He chose men of low repute. God exalts the humble, the Bible says, and He lays low the proud. And He uses the common person. In fact, the Bible says in Psalm 8, 2, Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength. And so God uses and chose ordinary, lowly men as His disciples. Let's look at one of them today. Mark chapter 2, we're only going to read one verse to start, and then we'll look at other scriptures as we pass through these, uh, or look through his life. Verse number 14. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom, and he said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. Father, I ask you today to bless as we look at Matthew, and I know Lord, if we do pay any type of attention today, we're going to be able to identify with this man in some way. May you use it to challenge us in Jesus' name. Amen. Probably none of the twelve was more notorious of a sinner than Matthew. Uh, he is called by his Jewish name in our text here, Levi the son of Alphaeus. Uh, Luke refers to him as Levi in Luke chapter 5, and then a chapter later, when he lists the twelve disciples, he calls him Matthew in Luke chapter 6. Matthew is the author, obviously, of the book, the gospel that bears his name. So we might expect to know a lot about Matthew. It's a lengthy book. And we might expect to know quite a bit about him, but as a matter of fact, we know very little about him. He seems to be a very modest man, kept himself in the background, literally in the entire book that he wrote about Jesus' life. In his entire gospel, he only mentions his name two times. One time to record the calling uh, when Jesus called him, and the other when he lists all twelve apostles. Matthew was a tax collector, a publican when Jesus called him. Now this is the last credential we might expect to see in the list of men that Jesus would call to be among his disciples. Uh, the one who would be a top leader in the church, one who would be actually a writer of one of the Gospels and a preacher of that Gospel. Tax collectors were the most despised people in all of Israel. They were the most hated and the most vilified by the Jewish society of that day. They were deemed lower than the Herodians. And to be a Herodian, that means you're an Israelite who was a... Uh, who, who was loyal to Herod or loyal to the Romans, which were the occupying force, the oppressors of their day. And they were even more hated than Roman soldiers because publicans were men that uh, basically bought a tax franchise from the Roman government. They would then tax the people of Israel, uh, giving the Romans what they demanded, but yet uh, demanding much more from the people so that they could pad their own pockets. They often strong-armed people, uh, money out of people by the use of thugs. Uh, most of them were despicable scoundrels. And Matthew 9.9 records the call of one of these type of men. Matthew. Look at what the... Well, listen as I read. Matthew 9.9, And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom, and he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. This is the only glimpse that we have of Matthew in his entire gospel. He lists himself just in, in the list of the apostles one more time. This is the only thing he says about himself. He goes on in the next verse, 
And it came to pass as Jesus sat at meat in the house, that's his house, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Matthew's first impulse after following Jesus or agreeing to follow him was to bring all his friends and introduce them to Jesus. Why? Because that's what a grateful, forgiven Christian does. He invites his friends. He wants to spread that good news with other people, the ones that he loves. I read about a Christian barber who was uh, at a revival meeting and they were talking about being a witness to your friends and he became very convicted about uh, the fact that he hasn't been a witness like he should be. And so uh, he determined that all the customers he has coming into his barber shop, he's going to start being a witness to them. And so he gets up the next morning and he prays, Lord, today I'm going to witness to the first customer that comes through my door. Soon after he opened his shop, a man walked in and said, I need a shave. And so he sets him down at the chair and the barber's a little nervous because he isn't used to doing this, but he, he prays to himself, Lord, I, I, I told you I'd witness to the first person that came in and uh, today I want to do so. Give me wisdom and give me the right words. And, and then as the man lay there and the barber approached him with a razor and just as he puts the razor to the man's neck, he says, sir, are you ready to die? Now, there's ways we can witness, but that's what Christians do, amen? Uh, meaning, well, uh, there's maybe better ways to go about it, but one of the things that a redeemed, blood-bought child of God wants to do is share that message with somebody else, and that's what happened to Matthew. He immediately invited his friends. He had a large banquet in Jesus' honor. Uh, Luke records what happened at this banquet in Luke 5, uh, 29, and Levi made him a great feast in his own house, and there was a great company of publicans and others that sat down with them. But the scribes and the Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? Why indeed? Why didn't Matthew invite this type of people to his house to dine with Jesus, these type of lowlifes? Because these were the only people he knew. He was not accepted in society. He couldn't go to church or the synagogue. He couldn't be around the Israelite respected people. That was his friend group, was lowlifes, outcasts, because that's what he was. And I think it's interesting that Jesus gladly came and ate with them. Because Jesus Christ goes where he's invited, and he leaves when he's not invited. Uh, he was uninvited from our schools in the 1960s, and he left. I ask those of you who've been around for a while, have our schools gotten better or worse since Jesus Christ has been kicked out of them? Amen? We don't have to think very long to get the answer to that one. But Jesus goes where he is invited. Now, of course, the people of the religious establishment were outraged about this, uh, that Jesus would eat with this type of people. And, and Jesus replied, rightly so, I've come for the sick. The, the well do not need a physician, but the sick. And that's who I've come for. And the Pharisees, of course, did also need a Savior. They just didn't realize it. They didn't recognize their own need. And so he had not come to call the self-righteous, the good. He came to call sinners. And I'm glad for that. Because I are one. And so are you. Amen? I'm one of those sinners. And I'm grateful that Jesus Christ came for someone like me. It's interesting that three times in the Gospels, tax collectors are mentioned, uh, and each one found forgiveness. We have the uh, Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 9. We have the publican mentioned in Luke chapter 18. And then we have Matthew in this passage right here. In fact, Luke chapter 15, 1 says, Then drew there near him all the publicans and sinners 
for to hear him. Jesus told the religious leaders in Matthew chapter 21, Verily I say unto you, listen to this statement, this would be infuriating for the Pharisees to hear. Verily I say unto you, that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. Whew, that's stiff language. That's like walking up today to a Catholic priest or, uh, or a vicar of some type and, and telling him that uh, because of their... And, and we know, by the way, that religion doesn't take you to heaven. That's the point Jesus is trying to make. doesn't matter how religious you are. It's not going to do you a lick of good without having uh, the Son of God as your personal Savior. So I think of the parable in uh, Luke 18 of the publican and the Pharisee. And you can turn there if you like. It's Luke 18.10. I want to read you a couple of verses here. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Now just get this picture. Here's the Pharisee. Here's the publican. They're not standing this close to far apart, but they're both standing there in front of the temple. And listen to the Pharisee's prayer. Dear God, I thank thee. That's a good way to start your prayer, isn't it? Thankfulness. Uh, the front door and the back door of prayer ought to be praise. And so it's a good thing to praise God. But listen to what he thinks. Lord, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. Wow. What a way to start a prayer, huh? Thank you, God, that I am me. That's what he started to pray. Uh, not as other men are extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even as this publican that's standing over here. That's how his prayer went on. I fast twice a week. I tithe of all that I possess. He continues to talk about his goodness. And then the Bible says in the public and standing afar off, he says he would not so much as lift his eyes, but he smote his breast saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, that man went home justified. Boy, that's hard language for religious leaders to realize. But notice that the tax collector stood afar off, and he had to because they were not permitted past the court of the Gentiles. They were so hated that a supposedly godly, moral man could point at them and said, Thank God I'm not like him. They were despicable. They were vile. They were social outcasts. And we have to be careful because we can very easily get into that attitude, can't we? We can very easily look at ourselves and say, well, you know, I've got my faults, but thank God I'm not like that guy. It's so easy to get caught up in that type of thinking. In fact, I read about one Sunday school teacher who was teaching her children this story about the publican and the Pharisee. And as she wrapped up the story, she bowed her head to pray and said, had the kids bow their heads, and this is how she started her prayer. Dear Lord, thank you that we are not like that Pharisee kind of misses the point of that story, doesn't it? Uh, very natural for us to do that. But how wonderful it is in that story that the publican is the one, the tax collector, the rejected, the one societal have nothing to do with, and he's the one that went home justified. It tells me, friend, that Jesus Christ will take anyone who comes to him uh, in humility and uh, comes for forgiveness. Now, going on about Matthew, there were two different types of tax collectors in that day, the Gabbai and the Mokes. The Gabbai were general tax collectors. They took things like property tax, income tax, poll tax. The Mokes were, they collected taxes on imports, exports, goods for domestic trade, basically anything that was, uh, that would travel by road, that you were open to a Mokes tax. And they, 
uh, had a search warrant for everything. If you were transporting goods of any type, they would be able to stop you. They'd be able to go through everything that you have, your, your uh, trade goods or whatever you might have uh, there, and they were just able to say whatever tax they wanted to say. They were able to extort you, and you'd have to pay because they were backed by the Roman government and often had thugs with them to enforce what they asked for. It was a terrible situation. Now, there were two types of mokes, the great mokes and the little mokes. Uh, a great mokes would be behind the scenes, and he hired people to go out and collect the taxes. That would be Zacchaeus. He was a great mokes. Matthew, though, was a little mokes. He was one of the ones that was out in front of the people, and really, he would be resented probably the worst because he was seen the most. He was the one that they would have to face, and he's the one that did the actual collecting. He effectively cut himself off of his family, of his people, and of his God. Banned from the synagogue, forbidden to worship in the temple, he was worse off than a Gentile. But before we see what happens to him, let's just give you a couple of facts about Matthew to help us understand him a little better. Number one, Matthew would have been one of the better educated disciples. He would have to communicate in his job in several languages. Now, the Romans spoke Latin. Greek would be spoken uh, throughout this region as well. And most of the Jews spoke Hebrew or Aramaic. And so he'd have to have a working knowledge of all that, not to mention tax laws and numbers and such things. Number two, he was a tool for the Roman Empire. <clears throat> the Roman Empire was expanding into Asia and to Africa and to Britain, and they had to hire people to levy taxes to help with this expansion. It obviously was a very expensive undertaking. And the people they hired, for them, it was a very lucrative job because they turned over what Rome demanded, but Rome supported them into extorting whatever they wanted from the people to pad their own pockets and to build their own wealth. No wonder they were hated and despised. And uh, we already don't like tax collectors, amen? But imagine if they, if they did everything to drive you into poverty. They were notoriously dishonest. Number three. Matthew sacrificed everything to follow Jesus. Imagine what he had to walk away from. Wealth, incredible wealth, prestige, power. By the way, that's what it looks like if we decide to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to be willing to walk away from everything. That does not mean that we have to live a miserable life, the farthest thing from it. But we have to be willing to forsake all to follow him. Jesus said in Luke 14, 33, So likewise, whosoever it be of you that will not forsake all to follow me, he cannot be my disciple. That's a strong statement. And stop and consider that. How does that fit into our consumer-minded generation today? You have to forsake all to follow him. We are very wary as Christian, uh, of, of a Christianity that costs us anything. You, you'll find that as a general principle in people's thinking in this day and age. We live in a time when people want the crown, but no cross. They want the position, but no passion. They want the opportunity, but no obstacle. We live in a day when people want the privilege of Christianity, but nothing to do with the reality of it. And uh, I find it interesting in the Bible, just to make this clear, for salvation, Jesus invites everybody. Everybody is 
uh, offered the gift of salvation for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ calls everybody to the, uh, to, to the cross for salvation. In John seven thirty seven, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. Anybody, everybody is a candidate for salvation. But when it comes to discipleship, Jesus is looking for serious contenders. I like what Henry Drummond said. The entrance fee into the kingdom of heaven is nothing. It's free. It's a gift. By the way, it has to be because we can't earn it. There's nothing we can do to earn salvation. We can't be good enough. We can get baptized until we, uh, as many times want, it won't do anything for us, okay? Uh, it, it's a heart issue. It's what we do with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and so there's nothing we can do to earn heaven, and so it's a gift. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he says the entrance fee into the kingdom of heaven is nothing. The annual subscription is everything. Why? Because he wants to be the Lord of your life. The greatest commandment is found in Deuteronomy 6.5. Je Jesus quoted this as the number one commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And can I tell you, don't miss this principle here, that Jesus demand that we be willing to forsake all to follow him. It is the grace of God that he demands this. It is not an unfair demand because it's the only thing that brings peace and contentment in your life. He is the only one that brings peace and contentment following Christ. You cannot depend on temporal things because they're Exactly that. They're temporal. And so, if you depend on something or someone in this world, your satisfaction, your fulfillment, it only depends on its permanency. And nothing in this world is permanent. One example Matthew gives that many of us are caught, caught up on. Uh, he says this uh, in chapter 6, verse 24. And this is interesting that Matthew said this. He said, uh, Jesus is talking, and Matthew records it, no man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will despise the one and hold to the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, or God and money. And it's interesting that Matthew, the one who once served money, the one who chose money over family, over heritage, over his spiritual beliefs, over everything, money was his God. And he says, let me tell you, from personal experience, you can't serve God and mammon. You have to make a choice. Uh, because lovers of money find themselves daydreaming and fantasizing about new ways to make more of it. They look at jealousy with those who have more than they do. And uh, they, by the way, I get it. The, the, the obsession with money. I come from a long line of Frugality experts, that's what I like to call it. Uh, our wives call it tightwads, but I prefer frugality expert. In fact, uh, if you've ever looked at the history of copper wire, copper wire was invented when two Amish men found a penny. And uh, think about that for just a second. But uh, I come from that line, all right? Sometimes an over-obsession with money. It's a common desire with all of us. But trusters of money feel that they have control over their life because of their wealth. It, they, bring, they, they get their security in what they have. Because we look, at, look to money for our significance and our security, 
That means we have to have it. And so we are driven to serve the almighty dollar. And can I tell you, friend, money makes a great servant. Would you agree? I like having it rather than not having it. I usually carry a little bit in my pocket uh, in case I need to purchase something. It's nice to have money. It makes a great servant, but friend, it makes a terrible master. And we need not to worship it. So if God, though, becomes the center of your life, if He, if he becomes the, the core of your desires, if you forsake worldly things to follow Him, that then dethrones and demotes money in your life. If your identity and your security is in God, then money can no longer control you through desire, through worry, through jealousy, and all those other things. Again, it's the grace of God that He demands our all because He is the only one that can offer us what our heart so desperately desires. The world certainly cannot. It must be one or the other. You'll serve one. Jesus says you must be willing to forsake all. I like what C.S. Lewis said, aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. God will bless, but we have to be willing to give Him our all. Number four, fact about Matthew. Matthew hurt the other disciples. He collected taxes in the same region that Peter, James, and John did their business in. They would have had their fishing business, and uh, Matthew would have taxed them. Uh, they, a lot of taxes at that time were levied basically for the purpose of driving people into poverty. He would have been a constant thorn in the side of Peter, James, and John as they fished to try to provide for their families. Uh, you see, often we look at the disciples, the group of the disciples, as kind of like those old Robin Hood movies we used to see, this band of merry men that just traveled together. We think, oh, that's sweet. You know, they were just on a three-year camping trip, just having a good old time. The truth of the matter is there was a lot of tension there was a lot of issues that they had to work through. And we, and, and especially in, in searching out each one of their lives, I'm starting to realize that more and more. The different type of, uh, personalities, the different type of backgrounds that Jesus pulled together into his group of disciples. Uh, there was a lot of tension. These men were hurt by Matthew. I can't imagine the reaction as if they're with Jesus at the time, presuming they're walking with Jesus, and Jesus stops and looks at Matthew and says, follow me. All the other disciples, no doubt, pounced on that moment. Whoa, you don't know what you're asking for here, Jesus. You have no idea who he is. And yet Jesus called Matthew. And over time, though they were bitter enemies at one point, as I mentioned when we talked about Simon the uh, zealot, he would have killed Matthew at one point, and then they ended up working together because of what Jesus Christ did for them. This is so helpful to the local church. John 13, 35 says, By this shall all men know you're my disciples, if you have love one to another. If you have love. Uh, the badge of our discipleship is not in our doctrinal statements, although that is important. The badge of our discipleship is not in the types of hymns that we play or the music that we prefer, although that is significant as well. It is not in the rituals we have or the ordinances that we observe, although those are also helpful. Uh, it is not even in the standards we have, but what does show our Christ-likeness, what does show our Christianity, is our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, our love for one another right in here in this room. But here's a little secret. 
not everyone's lovable. Amen? Not everyone is lovable. And if you're here today and you say, Preacher, I don't know anybody like that, it's probably you. I'm just saying, not everybody is lovable. There are some people that it's a little more difficult to love than other people. Yet here we are. We're thrown in the middle of a local church and all types of different backgrounds and all types of different people and different belief systems even sometimes. And we're called to love one another. By the way, can I tell you the setting in which Jesus gave that statement? By this shall all men know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Something had just happened a minute before he said that. Uh, he had announced to the disciples, it was the Last Supper, he had announced to the disciples that uh, we're about to have a traitor here, somebody's going to betray me. They all looked at each other and they said, is it I, is it I? They didn't know who it was. And then Jesus says, he it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And so then Judas uh, took that, the Bible says, and then he left quickly. And right after that, Jesus made that statement. In the face of betrayal, in the face of treachery, Jesus says we've got to love one another. That's a wow verse, isn't it? And the face of what was happening. And that just leads to this question. Has somebody wronged you? Have you been sinned against? Have you been mistreated? Our flesh always wants to retaliate. Amen? If we get hit, we'll hit back harder. But the Bible says, and Jesus says here, to forgive and to show love. Back to Matthew. Perhaps the most fascinating thing we see about Matthew is his name. Matthew's name, the name Matthew means gift of Jehovah. And he's also known throughout scripture by the name Levi, which Levites were the priestly tribe of Israel. This tells us something about Matthew's parents. Probably, most likely, presumably, they had very high hopes for the little boy Matthew. Names meant a lot in Bible times. And uh, they, they, they gave them for a reason. And so here they called him a gift from God. And then they identified him as a servant of God. No doubt they had many high hopes for him. And how do you think they felt then when Matthew went uh, out to serve Rome as a tax collector? Devastated, I'm sure. You remember John Walker Lind? Let me remember that name. That was a few years ago. He was captured by U.S. forces as an enemy combatant when, the, when we did our invasion of Afghanistan in November of 2001. He was from a normal family, American kid, born in Washington, D.C., raised in Maryland. And then sometime, at some point, he changed his name to Suleiman Al-Faris, and he joins the Taliban army. Goes overseas and joins the Taliban's and he fights in that war with the Taliban's. Uh, that's the, uh, think about his parents, okay, in America after 9-11, realizing their son was captured as a Taliban fighter. That's what I'm talking about. That's the type of treachery. That's the type of treason that Matthew committed to go to work for the enemy. That's how they would have felt. I believe that they disowned him. I'll show you why I believe that in a minute here. But this would be a tremendous act of betrayal against his family and his people. Yet Jesus calls him. Yet Jesus redeems him. And he chose him to follow him. Imagine, friend, what Jesus can do for you. You say, preacher, you don't know what I've done. I have a background. I have a past. Oh, friend, listen. So did Matthew. Worse than you did, probably. And look what he did for him. 
Jesus can do the same for you. Maybe you, like Matthew, have disappointed the people who've invested in you. Maybe your life has not turned out the way that you hoped it would. Jesus can pick up the broken pieces of your life, put them back together again, and give you a purpose to live for Him, just like He did for Matthew. Now let's dig a little deeper in the name of Matthew. Here's something interesting. Our text verse in Mark 2.14 says, As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom, said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And then one chapter later, we see something interesting. If you've got your Bible open still, turn over to chapter 3, verse 16. Now he's listing all the apostles. And Simon he surnamed Peter, and James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James. And he surnamed them Bonargus, which is the sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaanite. Did you catch that? Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, and then James, also the son of Alphaeus. Now, is Alphaeus a common name? It's possible. Uh, Matthew, uh, or could it be here that Matthew is the brother of James the Less? Now, it's entirely possible that Alphaeus was a common name, like Ivan is today, you know, all over everywhere you go. Uh, but Matthew, listen very carefully here. See, Matthew only refer, this, this could be a coincidence in this, in this chapter here, where it tells us that Alphaeus is the father of both of them. Although it's not strange that brothers would be disciples of Jesus. There's already two groups of brothers. James and John are brothers, and Peter and Andrew are brothers. So it's not an unheard of thing. It's not a stretch that brothers would be there. But if they were brothers, why wouldn't the Bible just say so? And I think there's a reason for it. Here's an interesting tidbit. In the Gospel of Matthew, he introduces himself differently than Mark does in the Gospel of Mark. It is Mark that says he's the son of Alphaeus. Matthew only refers to himself as Matthew. He never calls himself the son of Alphaeus. He does call James the son of Alphaeus in Matthew 10.3, but then he just calls himself Matthew. Now, I mentioned before, and I think it's very possible, that he has been disowned. I think it's very possible his father told him, you are no longer my son. I am no longer your father. You are dead to me when he went to work for Rome. And so in deference, it's possible he did not use his father's name. And then further, if these guys were brothers, what kind of relationship would they have? This, again, the disciples were not naturally harmonious. There was a lot of conflict thrown together in this group. And when Jesus tells us, as the local church, we are to love one another, he is not assuming that all of us just get together on a big old campfire, join hands, sing kumbaya, and everything's natural. Sometimes it takes some work, amen? Sometimes it takes some spirituality for us to get over some of these things. Some of this is just speculation, but here's one thing we do know. Your messed up family situation doesn't exempt you from Jesus Christ. Your past does not stop Him from being your Savior. A family can be a source of discouragement for all of us, though. I heard about one young preacher. He had two really small children. And he got up in the pulpit one day and he preached a message, Ten Ways to Raise Godly Children. Some years later, as his children were now entering teen years, he preached the same message. And now, though, it was entitled, Ten Suggestions for Raising Godly Children. 
Several years later, his children were now in their late teens, and uh, his sermon got yet another airing. Now it's entitled, Feeble Hints for Fellow Strugglers. All right, families can be problematic, can't they? But your past, your broken relationships, all those things, though they might dissuade you, will never exempt you from coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus can take the wounds of your past and offer you healing. If these men were brothers, they had to overcome some things to work together. And what better setting than being a friend of Jesus? With all this in mind, it must have been a stunning moment as Matthew is in his receipt of customs there. Jesus walks by. No doubt Matthew would know who he is. He was a celebrity or minor celebrity by that time. For Jesus to turn, and, and, and Matthew's just there in his office doing his despicable job, and as people are passing by, no doubt they are, uh, whenever they do see or look at Matthew, their lips would curl in disgust. But not Jesus. He looked at him and simply said, follow me. And Matthew instantly, without hesitation, the Bible says, arose and followed him. He left his toll booth. He, left, he turned his back on all his wealth, all his prestige, all his valuables, all his luxury for something better. Now, I ask you today, what was in Matthew that would cause him to drop everything in less time than it takes to say, no good rotten tax collector? And he got up and followed Jesus. He had to have been materialistic. He had to. All right, no man would give up his family and, and be such a traitor to his own people unless he had serious, because the only plus to his job was money. So he had to be very materialistic in his life because he walked away from his family. But now he walked away from everything to follow Jesus. We presume, really, that Matthew had to have some kind of tortured soul. He was a sinner who turned his back on all that he had been taught. He was unfulfilled by what the world had to offer. He had to be or he wouldn't have followed Christ. He was unfulfilled by the things that he had acquired. At some point, despite his despicable career, he had within him a gnawing spiritual hunger. And oh, friend, let me tell you, the things of this world, with all of its pleasures, can never satisfy your heart's desires. Maybe Matthew had read what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 107, 9, For he satisfieth the longing soul and filleth the hungry soul with goodness. We know that Matthew knew the Old Testament very well. Did you know in the Gospel of Matthew, he quotes the Old Testament 99 times? More times than Mark, Luke, and John all put together. Matthew knew the Old Testament. In fact, he quotes out of every section of the Old Testament. Books of Moses... Uh, the, the law, he, he quotes out of the law, he quotes out of poetry, minor prophets, major prophets, he quotes out of all of them. So he had a good working knowledge of the scriptures available to him. Because of his profession, he could not enter the synagogue. So he had to have many of these studies and must have done much of this studying on his own. But because of this knowledge, he would understand Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah he would know about Jesus also as he sits in the toll booth. He would get all the gossip that's flowing back and forth in that day about this miracle worker who was doing miracles up and down the coast, how he cast demons out of people, how he had healed a leper. And one day Jesus walks by. 
looked at by his booth, looks at him in the eyes and says, follow me. And Matthew had enough faith to cease being a slave to the world and to begin being a friend of Jesus. Oh, would that more people would make that choice today. His complete conversion, uh, this transformation is seen in his evangelistic banquet at, home, at his home. I mean, he immediately wanted to make a difference in other people's lives. This, so this is what we know of Matthew to kind of boil it down. He knew the Old Testament. He believed in God. He looked for the Messiah. He dropped everything immediately when he met Jesus. In the joy of his new relationship, he introduced his outcast friends to Jesus. He was a man of quiet humility who loved the marginalized of society and he had no patience for religious hypocrisy. He stands as a shining example that God will use the unexpected or choose the unexpected and use them in great ways. He redeems them, gives them new hearts, and uses ordinary people in extraordinary ways. As a tax collector, Matthew knew what his sin, just how despicable it was. He understood the betrayal against his own people. He knew he was guilty of all sorts of debauchery. But when Jesus said, follow me, Matthew knew that in that invitation lay a promise for forgiveness. And he followed him. Oh, what a blessed moment. His heart had longed for such forgiveness. That's why he arose without hesitation and devoted the rest of his life to following Christ. This friend of Jesus, oh, don't miss this picture. He gives us a clear picture of a man who had everything that most people want out of life. He had all the things that, the, all the, the physical possessions you could have. He had a big bank account. He had a Rolex sundial on his wrist. Okay, he had a four-wheel drive chariot with heated seats and remote horse harnessing. He had all that kind of good stuff. And yet he walked away from it in a moment. Why? Because that stuff will not satisfy. It didn't then and it won't now. It'll never satisfy. One person put it this way, to be content with little is difficult. To be content with much is impossible. We'll never be content, no matter how much we have, because things will never satisfy. Now, Matthew wrote his gospel with a Jewish audience in mind. Tradition says that he ministered to the Jews in uh, Israel and in the world many years before he was finally martyred for his faith. Tradition tells us that he was burned at the stake. In Fox's Book of Martyrs, we read this about Matthew. The scene of his labors was Parthia and Ethiopia, in which latter country he suffered martyrdom, being slain in the city of Nebadah in A.D. 60. So this man walked away from a lucrative career without a second thought, and he was willing to give his all for Christ for the rest of his life. If you, like Matthew, in your life have come to the end of yourself, and you, you finally find that, that even, uh, even rock bottom has a basement. You know what I'm talking about? You've gotten to the end of all of yourself. Will you, like Matthew, walk away from that which will not satisfy and follow a Savior who will satisfy? See, Matthew gave up some worldly things, but in the end, oh my friend, he gained it all. He gained, everything is gained. That's what, 
uh, Paul said that he counts all uh, that he, he everything that he supposedly gave up he counts but dung for the cause of Christ. Forsake all those things which never brought you contentment in the first place, and follow Him who will. Have you made that decision today? That's the story of Matthew, the friend of Jesus. I hope the same is true in your life, that you've chosen to follow a Savior instead of a bunch of stuff that will never satisfy. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed.